2: China's state TV station has been accused now of targeting British university campuses, offering students the chance to win thousands of pounds by becoming pro-Beijing social media influences.
1: Earlier this year, a report commissioned by a group of conservative MPs revealed that 20 leading UK universities had accepted, between them, more than £40 million in funding from China.
0: And a former top lawmaker in the UK wants an investigation into ties between a Cambridge University research centre and Chinese tech company Huawei.
1: Then in September, we heard claims that the Chinese tech company Huawei had, its critics said, quote unquote, infiltrated a research center at Cambridge University.
0: A Chinese bank is supporting scientists at Oxford University with a pledge of 60 billion yuan, nearly $10 billion.
1: And Chinese banks were also in the mix. Young scientists are busy in a lab here at the University of Oxford, knowing that they now have major financial backing to support their findings. It's clear our universities rely heavily on students from China. In fact, the numbers are pretty astonishing. Chinese students are estimated to be worth almost £2 billion to the UK's higher education sector. And we share knowledge too. China is second only to the United States as the country with which UK scientists now undertake the most collaborative research. And seen on one level... Surely that's a massive success story, the world pooling its best brains, university campuses being a place that are international, open and diverse, new friendships, real friendships between East and West forged at a formative age. But then what's the risk? Does China's money come with a gagging order on debating or even researching sensitive issues such as the incarceration of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, the freedom of expression and right to protest in Hong Kong, Taiwanese independence. And at what price for academia, for research, for science in the UK? Are we simply funneling the West's best innovations and ideas into the Chinese economy just to help the finances of cash strapped UK universities? Hello, and welcome to The China Problem, a series of think-ins with me, James Harding. For decades after the Communist Revolution of 1949, academic exchange between China and the West was all but prohibited. Today, it's thriving. But rather than being a cause of celebration, it's increasingly a source of Cold War suspicion. So in this episode of The China Problem, we ask if we should still be welcoming Chinese money and students, Chinese cultural organizations, and academic collaborations onto Western campuses. The number of Chinese students attending foreign universities has gone from fewer than 5,000 in 1985 to more than 660,000 in 2018. Yeah, that's a 130-fold increase. And the US, Britain, and Australia are the preferred destinations. It's part of a global trend. Chinese students now make up the biggest proportion of foreign students in the world. And though the pandemic might have slowed this trend, it's still a financial boon for the universities of the West. Our research sector is also working hand-in-hand with Chinese universities. And academic research, particularly in the most sensitive areas of technology and security, healthcare and energy... These centres are working more and more and increasingly reliant upon Chinese companies. And then there are the Confucius Institutes. These are funded by the Chinese government and their activities include courses in Chinese language and culture and they're taught by people supplied by the People's Republic of China. The question for them is whether their function is to teach the language or somehow a Chinese way of seeing things. Unlike other elements of the China problem, The campus problem, if you like, is closer to home. As you'll hear in the conversation to come, there isn't really an either-or answer to be had here. No-one sensible wants to go back to the 1960s and 1970s. No-one wants to close the doors of the West, close off learning and academic exchange. And as you'll hear, I think, too, there's a whiff of McCarthyite hysteria in all this. But we'd have to be very naive... ...to think that there's not a chipping away of some academic freedoms... ...a concerted effort to rewrite some of China's story for the student population... ...a risk that good ideas, valuable ideas, are getting siphoned off. So the question then is, what's China's place on campus? There are three people with me to try and get to grips with this question. Rehan Assat is a human rights lawyer and a world fellow at Yale University... With us, too, is Gregory Lee, founding professor of Chinese studies at St. Andrew's University, who before that also taught at the University of Lille in France, at the University of Chicago in the United States, and yes, at the University of Hong Kong. And David Pillsbury is here, too. He was for many years the deputy vice-chancellor international for Coventry University and spent much of that time building academic collaborations for all sorts of universities. And he still sits on the board of the China-Britain Business Council. I wanted to start with you, Rehan, if I might. Do you want to start by telling us what happened at Brandeis, and then we can take it from there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I was invited to be panellists at Brandeis University on a topic of cultural genocide against Uyghurs. And actually, like a few hours prior to the event, we've got an email from the school and said there has been a protest to cancel the event. But the university is going to let us continue the event and make sure that we are in the now. Um, and one of the things that I asked the university, again, this is a COVID period, so this is going to be a resume kind of discussion of bringing together different panellists. Um, I asked them to to make sure that uh, security, some sort of tech security is in, put in place uh, so that we, the event won't be disrupted.
1: And Rehan, forgive me, your Uyghur, your family's Uyghur?
2: Yes. So my parents right now live in Urumqi, which is the capital city of Xinjiang, where the mass trusts are taking place. And my own brother is in one of those prison camps. So I walked into this conversation, believing that, you know, we've put in place security measures. The first panel has been okay. The second panelist, for some reason, I don't know how they were able to break in and play the Chinese national anthem during his presentation. And after like 40 seconds, he was kicked out. And then it was my turn. And now, like at this point, I'm not even saying anything. I'm not accusing the Chinese government of committing JenSA or anything. I'm just starting. I have a brother who is, before coming to the United States, on a very prestigious international business leadership program that have produced many world leaders, including Margaret Thatcher, Tony Blair of the UK, and Justin Arden of New Zealand, he also put into the camps. And before coming to the U.S., he was in the good graces of China. And I was just explaining this. And somebody was able to control my screen and started to name calling me and calling this a fake news. And it was a discussion about my brother and they start to cross over his picture in kind of like, you know, red ink. And it's kind of like very bloody. So I started to feel panic, but uh, I asked them, please respect academic freedom. Allow me to finish my talk. And if you have a different opinion, please raise it at the end of my discussion. But it was a traumatizing experience, I must say.
1: Rehan, I suppose there are two questions that arise from that. One is, do you have any idea who that person or those people were?
2: I didn't know until like after the event, because I did ask the university must investigate this, because we cannot allow... Uh, human rights defenders and sisters like me coming to inform the world about what's happening, be intimidated by what happened to me. So the university, I'm sure they have investigated, but some students came forward, some Chinese students, and they said the protest was organized by by China Scholar Student Association. And it was done through WeChat. You know, people said, we're going to disrupt the event. There was a very well orchestrated coordination But the China Scholar Student Association seems to be listed on the New York consulate of the Chinese embassy. So there is some sort of correlation between the Chinese government and these organizations to make sure that this event would be disrupted. And it was sad. And a student told me, a Chinese student who didn't agree with the ways other students trying to manipulate the event. He said, I'm so sorry this has happened to you, but I don't share their views.
1: I think lots of people will be familiar with extreme politics and disruptive tactics that are used by students. And so just to put the other side of the argument, it's not clear that what happened to you at Brandeis, even in this digital panel, what happened to you at Brandeis was either coordinated or instructed by the Chinese government. It it was made possible, your reading is, by a Chinese student organization that itself is or enabled by the Chinese government. Is that the case?
2: Yeah, the China scholarship organization is well known to be uh, always listed under the Chinese consulates in the. US. so so it's you, it's just like you know these things are vague so you I, I can if you ask me like do you have evidence to to point to that? I think the fact that they're linked there may be an evidence but uh, I mean I, I guess like you know I cannot speak beyond that.
1: Do you think that there's any reason to think that Brandeis fail to secure an environment for freedom of speech here? Or is this the kind of thing that frankly happens on a lot of contentious issues that some people try to shout the other people down?
2: I think this is going to happen. And I mean, it happened like at Berkeley in other universities, but because of this COVID era, I think universities are also learning that these kind of disruption can also happen over Zoom, right? It's, it doesn't have to be in-person attack, but it could also happen by the facilitation of these kind of platforms. And how do they overcome it? I think it's a new challenge and they, they must deal with.
1: David Pillsbury, can I ask you about this? Because I suppose that as I said at the beginning, my experience of China started in the 90s. And for about a decade, possibly even two decades after that, the work that you were doing that was bringing the university sector in the UK closer to the university sector in China was heralded as a great step forward, you know, not just in terms of funding and resources, but also in terms of academic interchange.
3: What's happened? What's changed? Well, the first thing I guess I'd say, James, is that we shouldn't immediately write off all of that effort as wasted or misplaced. You know, some people clearly want to revisit that. But I think you firstly have to say that you can't not engage with China. There are so many mutual dependencies in the world, you know, and you know whether we look to the future and the need to work together on climate change and public health, or whether you think about the importance we have of together working for uh, so and Economic Development We're all talking about China as though China is a unique, you know, homogenous entity. You know, it's 1.4 billion people, as I said, very different perspectives amongst different people. I once heard somebody say that, you know, we need to remember that Xi Jinping is not the Communist Party and the Communist Party is not the people of China. Now, I don't want to appear to be naive. Uh, We all understand that uh, China has got wealthier and has developed uh, particularly, amongst the young there's a very nationalistic streak but say I've been working with China for over 20 years and we have a Confucius Institute in uh, Coventry or when I was in Coventry I never had anybody emailing me or ringing me up telling me what I could or couldn't do and we had good relationships with the Ministry of Education and with the embassy because our focus was on building links between uh, our students and students in China.
1: I see the point that says, look, you can't just disengage from China. And to an extent, I frame this in a way that's simplistic. You know, the either sort of step forward or stand up to. It's obviously going to be more complicated than that. But if you like, people who have come from a period of time when we were all working with china and were quite excited about china engaging in the world and our opportunity to engage with china we have been brought up short by xi jinping what's happening in xinjiang you know what's happening in hong kong what seems to be happening in areas of the internet and now what seems to be what does seem to be happening in some campuses where there is pressure not to discuss certain things or to give a different read on issues of real sensitivity to China – Do you feel as though something changed in the last few years?
3: Yes, things have changed, but China is just one manifestation of things that have changed. If we think how quickly the climate emergency has come upon us, the public health emergency has come upon us, the the extent to which we have all become dependent on the internet. As you know, the UK government is trying very hard to make sure that universities don't... um, Uh, stand in the way of free debate we are locked into identity politics in the west in a way that is very unfortunate and that is running alongside some of these other more uh, globalized issues and i think it's a confluence of these issues rather than something that's specific about china
1: I wonder about that. I, I think there is something specific about China. But let's come back to it. Let's come back to that in a moment. Let's get, I want to bring in Gregory Lee, because Gregory, you said you started working in China in the late 70s, or first went to China in the late 70s. So, so will you run us through what you think's happened? If you give us sort of a quick history, late 70s to now.
4: Yeah, sure, the 1980s were a heyday. I mean, nothing was perfect. It wasn't, you know, there weren't sort of generalised liberties. But there was a hope that things were going to change uh, politically in the sense of a greater democracy. And then, of course, in China, things went the other way. So the early part of the 90s were quite difficult for everybody to try and sort of patch things up and start going back and building up relations. So about the time you arrived in Shanghai would have been the beginning of what I would say the the, the new Halcyon period uh, under Hu Jintao. Uh, so I do actually see a great change having taken place with Xi Jinping. I'd just like to say that I agree with a number of things that David uh, has said. First of all, that we shouldn't just talk about China. I mean, it's, it, it's great journalistic shorthand to talk about China and Beijing when we actually mean the Chinese authorities or we mean the, the presidency. And the other thing I would say is, yes, we do need to constructively engage. And that's what I've tried to do for most of my career when that's been possible. But that is becoming increasingly difficult. Uh, so although I maintain very good contacts with a number of academics, I've trained a number of Professors who who now work in in China in humanities departments, it's now very difficult to engage in that exchange. The, the, the freedom of speech that was there before, there was always a freedom of speech on the ground in terms of what you could say in oral freedom of speech, whereas people couldn't print it because then they really would get in, into trouble. But that's that's sort of gone by the board. I mean, Xi Jinping is is dead set against Western humanities knowledge and Western social sciences. So Western ideas are not welcome. And that's been the case for the last five to six, seven
1: years. Do you find that you now watch what you say? Let's take Xinjiang. Do you find you watch what you say about Xinjiang?
4: I don't watch what I say, because uh, from the beginning, I've been quite outspoken. You know, I've sort of signed a number of tribunes in in English and in French, supporting uh, Ilham Totti, who was one of our colleagues from the Minorities, the Nationalities University in Beijing, who's still in jail in shackles in, in Urumqi. So, you know, I've got a great deal of sympathy for the Uyghurs. I first visited there in 1981, and so I saw a completely different attitude from the Chinese authorities who who dealt with Xinjiang in a much more subtle and clever way uh, we 've now entered a, a very kind of brutal phase that, and, and what 's happening abroad that Rehan was talking about. The aggressive nationalism that that David referred to, that's a manifestation of that. I mean, I I do actually believe that it's not just uh, students who decide that they want to be patriotic on a campus in Australia or the United States. You think it's coordinated? Oh, my own experience of this. I mean, we know it's coordinated. You know, students are members of the Communist Youth League. They have to be to, to get out of the country, especially if they're officially sponsored. And, you know, it's not the fact that people who are in the Communist Youth League or in the Communist Party are bad people. I mean, most academics have to do that in order to get advancement. But, you know, it's been about 10 years now that since students, when they go abroad, wherever they're studying, they have to get a certificate of good conduct from the consul or the embassy in order to have their degree validated for when they get back to China. And, and what we've seen recently, because of what's happened in Hong Kong, is that students from Hong Kong, for instance, you know, right here in, uh, in the United Kingdom, are fearful. There's a self-censorship that kicks in where people can't participate in seminars or are frightened to participate in seminars. Uh, and the whole business of online teaching since COVID has exacerbated that situation. So, w- w- you know, we've all made provisions for that. At SOAS, and London, here in St. Andrews, you know, we're aware of this problem. We can't teach to Chinese students in China the way we would if they were here. And even when they're here, that's become very difficult.
1: I'd love to talk a little bit more about that, Gregory, but I just want to ask Rehan just to follow up on that. What Gregory's talking about more broadly here, the change in the way in which China conducts itself, and particularly in Xinjiang. If you were not just a world fellow at Yale, if you ran Yale... What would you say should be the rules in terms of what money the university accepts, what students the university accepts, what academic exchanges the university has?
2: You know, I I understand that, you know, this foreign funding or government funding in academic institutions is becoming more and more a serious concern for many of us, right? Um, So if there is a government funding for right purpose, for example, to empower Chinese students, providing them scholarship and opportunities to survive and come back, maybe even help their countries. Like I have no problem with that. But when that money becomes a constraint on academic freedom, but it comes at the cost of engaging in personal attacks or asking the students to have loyalty to the Chinese government instead of actually learning about the right values, how do we arm ourselves with the choose and empower ourselves with academia and knowledge and and choose seeking this process, But, but we're still here engaging in a mindset we're totally controlled by our government and we must report whatever happening in our institutions to the Chinese Communist Party. We have to take pictures of the events that are taking place and then report, then I have a serious problem with that. And another problem with um, David, I I do believe in engagement. I'm not in any way advocating for total disengagement because I I understand that point of view, but I am worried that people like David, they don't have influence to go back to their counterparts with whom they built this connection over the years to say, look, there's these issues happening. Activists, human rights defenders, lawyers uh, are being interrupted. Can you also talk to your government and have a proper engagement with us? That conversation, I don't believe they do have that influence. Here's a problem. The World Fellows Program assembled fellows from all over the world came here and were here to learn from each other. It's been just such an enlightening experience for me and for everybody. Look at my brother. He didn't come alone. He came with other Han uh, friends from China, representing China. But look at what happened. He's the one who disappeared into the shadows of the internment camps. Why haven't I heard from the academics, both the UK and American, to talk to the Chinese government? How could we run these exchange programs when you detain one Uyghur? Who is the representative of this program? And he was supposed to represent diverse China, and then he disappears.
1: Well, David, do you want to do you want to respond just to the first point about the being able to push back to your counterparts in the Chinese educational establishment?
3: Sure. So, I mean, I have friends who are Chinese academics, and we have open and and frank debates. But I think I would say that. Putting things into the public domain is not necessarily the most effective way of making this happen. I mean, some of this stuff is best done in private, because actually the world is messy and politicians have multiple objectives, sometimes they're in conflict, that they need to take forwards. And I'm not saying that we simply trust our politicians and have done with it, but let's not think that uh, just because we don't hear about it, it's not happening, I mean, on the point about students coming, I'd just say again, what's the alternative? The alternative is that the students don't come. Okay, and I really don't understand this argument that says we shouldn't have Chinese students here in the UK or in the West. Because if your concern is about the perspectives that Chinese students develop within China... How realistically are you going to address that other than by giving them the opportunity to come to somewhere else where the world is different? And I'm not suggesting that they're going to then seek to insert a parliamentary democracy in China, but only if they come will they see, will there be a chance of seeing how things are done differently, being exposed to Western values and vision. And I'm sorry if that sounds very limited uh, on my part, But I guess I'm just trying to be realistic about what is possible and, you know, the integrity of the nation states. You know, we might all like countries to behave as ours do, but actually countries have the right to go forwards with the support of their populations. And we know what happens when we try and implement regime change. I mean, we're dealing with that in the Middle East. well, Well, let's let's before we sort of
1: escalate it, let's just try and stick if we can, David. To, if you like, the four elements, or at least as I see it, the four elements of China's presence in Western university campuses. So there's students, there's money, there are forms of academic discourse or exchange, and there's, then there's some of the deliberate efforts you touched upon, the Confucius Institute, in terms of cultural exchange. Right. So, so, And I think, actually, even in this conversation, it's been helpful to really focus on the issues around students, whether or not you're talking about the informal or explicit relationship between the Chinese government and students or the point that Gregory made, which I'd not thought about, the extent to which Chinese students themselves are more exposed, particularly in the age of digital education, because the things they say and even the things they hear are all recorded online – So uh, it seems to me there's a whole level of risk there that's more complex than we thought.
3: I mean, my point about Confucius Institutes is, okay, the Chinese may very well be spying on us. We all spy on each other. Do you really think it's likely that they're going to be using the Confucius Institutes on which there's a great big Chinese flag to spy on us? Okay. also... People in government and in the population may think that people in universities are very weak, naive, and sort of otherworldly. But actually, that is absolutely not the case, Okay, If you think people in our world-class institutions are sitting there taking money from Huawei or Geely and just leaving their intellectual property open to be plundered, that is absolutely not the case. I mean, we could always do better, and the government, has uh, recently funded a group within DIT to help universities better protect their intellectual property. I think we all welcome that. Nobody wants to be exploited. And, you know, I'm a proud Englishman and I absolutely don't want anybody stealing our intellectual assets. But, you know, we need to have some sense of perspectives and being driven by these... Uh, sort of media narratives and the sort of public discourse in social media, I don't think is helpful.
4: You know, the Confucius Institute business is really very contentious. I mean, there, there have been good ones, or sort of innocuous ones, or are Confucius Institutes of Chinese Medicine, of Chinese Dance and what have you. And, you know, what the Confucius Institutes try to do in terms of the teaching of Chinese culture is to control the narrative, the, the, you know, the, the Chinese state, through the Confucius Institutes, very hamfistedly has tried to, attempted to control the narrative. Uh, you know, gr- greater scholars than me, Marshall Salins at the University of Chicago, uh, the great anthropologist, saw this coming uh, a, a while back and, and led a campaign to shut down the Confucius Institute uh, at Chicago and succeeded. And I myself, as I was a director of a Confucius Institute... And I suffered that
1: pressure. And can you just, sorry, sorry, Gregory, forgive me for interrupting. Can you just tell me, because I, I'm fascinated by this. And I don't actually know what that means. So when you, what was the kind of thing that you wanted to say that you then felt lent on not to say?
4: Well, you know, the way, the way Confucius Institutes uh, are structured, there's a local director who would be French, English, German uh, and then there's a Chinese director. So insofar as there are two universities working together, a Chinese university and, and the host institution, that can be a fruitful relationship. We had a very good university working with us, with whom we'd had good relations for a long time before. So I'm talking about the University of Lyon, uh, Confucius Institute in France. And things, you know, gradually uh, went from bad to worse worse with increasing demands from the Chinese side to be involved in the teaching in the curriculum. Now, because France is a state system, universities are state-controlled, that's impossible. That's like having a foreign state within the state. So obviously there were going to be frictions. That's less of a concern here because universities are more independent. But quite honestly, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. I can't put this too strongly, actually. I'm viscerally against the idea that a foreign state should control the way the United Kingdom studies and projects and critiques the image uh, of China.
1: Did you resign from the Confucius Institute
4: as a director? Uh, No, we shut down the Confucius Institute. In Lyon? Yeah, because we resisted the pressure that came from the Confucius Institute headquarters to have me removed as director. Because I wasn't conciliatory enough.
1: And just to just to give you some sense, when you're talking about controlling the narrative, what was it in particular that in your Chinese studies courses seemed at odds with what the Confucius Institute would have you teach?
4: Well, we didn't let them into the Chinese studies <laughs> <Right>. courses. <laughs> so, you know, we were quite happy to run the sort of the Saturday school for, uh, for school kids. And we used a lot of the, the money and the materials that were sent to us to do things like talk about Chinese pop music or the Chinese legal system. Uh, uh, and what they prefer you to do is to talk about paper cutting and Chinese fans and Chinese calligraphy. Right. So things which are very innocuous and supposedly non-political.
0: And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince dot com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. Quince dot com slash style.
1: What do I say to my Chinese friends who like go, this is a bit rich. You know, coming from the country that brought you the BBC in how many dozens of languages or Americans who say, you know, we had to listen to the voice of America, let alone the movies of Hollywood. This has also been an act of cultural projection and narrative control.
4: There's a great element of truth to that. Uh, You're right. The VOA, the British Council, uh, Alliance Francaise, the Goethe Institute, they just happen to do it a bit more subtly, don't they? America doesn't have to do it anyway. The United States has got Disney.
1: Yes. <laughs> but, but, but but we may be coming to, to something closer here because I think if I was a Chinese citizen, I would say I've got every right to try and project my version of what I believe China is in a way that you as a British citizen or an American one can project yours. The principle should be about the independence of the institutions that do the teaching So in that sense, if you can guarantee the one, you should be able to accommodate the other.
4: Uh, I'd agree with that. But the problem is that so many um, Chinese courses, Chinese studies departments have been set up on the basis of these agreements with the Confucius Institutes, uh, with the Chinese Ministry of Education. Yeah, of course, the Chinese have got the right to try and uh, propagate the way they see uh, uh, their history and culture. But it is a totalitarian state. And, you know, the vision of history is is an official vision. The narrative is an official narrative. It's not people sitting around in a seminar and exchanging views on what a particular period of Chinese history is about. And I want to just get to this point about money. But I just
1: want to ask you, Gregory, what you think, and then David and Rehan, whether or not you think Chinese investment funding in academic institutions is inhibiting freedom of speech on Western campuses by academics. Gregory?
4: I think, you know, I think it's an individual and uh, 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 a moral choice, isn't it? Uh, and, and, you know, I would agree with David that th- this is a complex area. There's no black and white. Uh, it is grey. But, you know, if a professor of engineering, you know, has had weaker students and feels strongly about it, then uh, you would expect him to speak up. Yeah. David, what's your experience of this?
3: Well, so I'm the Confu- was the Confucius Institute uh, director in Coventry, but our Confucius Institute was focused on promoting international trade. You know, West Midlands very focused on advanced manufacturing and uh, our partner universities similarly. So we didn't have these sorts of debates. I mean, uh,
1: but but David, but David, sorry, sorry to interrupt you. Of course, that's true. But but given that Rayhan's here, but even if she weren't, I think the real problem for, for someone like me, who is you can hear instinctively leans towards let's engage with China for all the reasons you've already said. The, the the thing that makes me really uncomfortable and the thing that I worry about looking back in ten, twenty years' time, is saying you could see you could see the maps on the ground. You heard the first person testimony. This is the greatest human rights violation and possibly worse, possibly a massacre of people that's unfolding in front of our eyes, and we're still working on the principle that we should and can do business with this country. And I worry that we'll look back and think that that was... We gave in to a certain degree of either self-interest or wishful thinking there.
3: I think we've agreed that we can't disengage. So what I think we're all in, uh, agreeing is that we engage where we can and we absolutely don't engage and make our uh, displeasure felt through whatever channels we think is appropriate and we also have to think about our interests as the united mm-hmm. kingdom and you know you can argue about whether universities should take the money i don't really don't see how taking money in areas like engineering is a problem in the social sciences and humanities, as Gregory says, there may be some problems. But you know, Britain, also, the UK also needs to think about its interests and the benefits that come socially and economically from foreign direct investment. I mean, you, know, you said nothing is without a price. Well, you know, that plays back the other way as well. So it's a balance of interests.
1: What do you what do you think of the point I was just putting to David that we might look back and say... Even in our universities, we worked with China when we had overwhelming evidence of a mass human rights violation in in Xinjiang and that we should have done much more to use the universities to stand up to China.
2: That's exactly my point. And we, we, we should do that. You know, we, we, we must acknowledge that these are two different systems of governance. When British scholars, American scholars could cite the Chinese government for committing atrocities, what happened? They've been sanctioned. But Chinese scholars and academics can criticize the US or Great Britain as much as they want. We welcome those criticisms because we want to be better. And that is a difference. Before, at least what the Chinese government makes sure is you don't get your visa renewed, you're not invited to come to China to engage in academic research. But now, like the government of China imposed sanctions against Joe Smith, Professor Joe Smith of Newcastle University. We're seeing more and more of that happening. But the fundamental problem right now, I feel like we're still buying into Chinese government narrative because these discussions cannot be public. We need to engage with the Chinese government privately. We cannot talk about these issues openly, but why not? What's the problem? Xi Jinping's daughter can study at Harvard they, they always send their children and daughters to Western institutions, not the Chinese institutions. But then they, they're exposed to all wonderful things, but they still operate with a different mentality. Why can't we invite them to be better? Why can we say, okay, you're here, you're in Western institutions, and ask the Chinese government, let them be students. Let them be academic scholars and do the research that they want with the freedom that they have in these countries. But we don't do that. The universities don't push back against that. And always say, well, the Chinese government doesn't like criticism, so we must do it privately as they desire. So we are basically allowing the Chinese government to dictate the norms, uh, how we should engage in discussions and exchanges, even though we disagree. Can uh, the president of um, Oxford go to China and say, you know what? I'm so glad the past 20 years we've engaged with China. We learned so much. But we're also dismayed about the atrocities taking place in Xinjiang. We are very much unhappy with the uh, autonomy and freedom has been erosion in Hong Kong. Can he say that? No.
1: And why do, Hold on, hold on. Why do you think he can't say, or she in this case, why can't she say that? She absolutely can if she chose to.
2: Because they self Exactly, but they self-censor.
1: Is that right, Gregory? Do you think that's the case? Academic leadership self-censors.
4: Yeah, I'm not going to talk for, for Oxford or for, for Cambridge. Well, I think the problem is actually complicated by the by the plethora of colleges and their individual arrangements with uh, with China. Um, you know, we do have to constructively engage, and I think that every university leader, nevertheless, ensures the academic freedom of the university's members as best as they can. So I wouldn't be sanctioned tomorrow for criticising China's behaviour towards the uh, Uyghurs. And we can't say that, well, you know, it's a moral question about the Uyghurs. It's actually a legal responsibility. So, so if, we, if we do try and distill what we've
1: discussed, what we are saying is, yes to constructive engagement but yes to a much more outspoken advocacy from our campuses about what's happening in Xinjiang and Hong Kong and in our dealings with China.
2: Exactly. And academic institutions are uniquely positioned to do so because just as much we welcome them the Chinese students love learning about our culture and our civilizations and academic freedom here. So are the children of Chinese officials if I dare to say that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that, 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 that's a third element to this. And let's make sure that, that that lesson particularly goes back to the children of the Politburo. David, Gregory and Rayhan, thank you very much. It, it's been exactly what I'd hoped, a conversation that really made me hear things I'd never heard before, but also think about things uh, in, a, in a
4: new and clearer way. Thanks very much. It was great great pleasure to, to meet you all, especially uh, uh, David and James and Rayhan. Thank
2: you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much, everybody.
1: In the first episode of this series of The China Problem, we talked about TikTok, the weaponization of tech and the age of the splinternet. And we concluded, or at least I did, that greater tech integration was preferable to disconnecting east from west, that a China-US standoff on AI on social media platforms and tech standards, runs the risk of making China into a bigger problem than it already is. After this episode on China and universities, after this thinking, I'm still not persuaded by the hawks. I remain closer to that 90s mindset of welcoming China back into the world. But it seems obvious to me that there's a need for tougher T's and C's. The terms and conditions of Chinese funding on Western campuses can only be First, without prejudice to free expression and academic inquiry. Second, without compromising those academic and student leaders who sorely need to speak out against Chinese militarism, authoritarianism and human rights abuses. And third, with protections that actually work in place for IP, for intellectual property. On those terms, though, surely Western campuses should remain open to Chinese students, Chinese ideas and Chinese investment. But then, what if China's conduct in Xinjiang, the world's greatest ongoing human rights violation, means that cooperation with China is complicity with the genocide? In the next episode of The China Problem, we address the most important and disturbing aspect of Xi Jinping's government, the oppression of the Uyghurs. I hope you'll join us. And please do subscribe to this podcast. Better still, you can take part in the conversation by joining our newsroom. At Tortoise, we're not only slow, we're open. We want to hear what you think. So you can become a member by going to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend, tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend. Please use my code, James50, and you get 50% off. You'll get access then to all of our journalism, all of our podcasts, and our live thinkings, where we continue to try and make sense of the world every day. This episode was produced by Morgan Childs, Klitzis Sala, and Katie Gunning. Tom Kinsella wrote the original music. Thinking with James Harding is a podcast from Tortoise Studios, which is run by Kerry Thomas and Basher Cummings.